everyone. Uh, welcome to the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, Regional Anesthesia and Pain Podcast, Azra Wrap. I'm your host, Raj Gupta, coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee. And we have an amazing program today. I've got three wonderful guests. We're going to talk about a topic that we actually haven't really addressed on this podcast before. This is related to a new um, section of the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. I'm going to get into more details about that uh, very soon. Before we get started, I do want to mention um, our good friend Jeff Gadston, and with a lot of help from his folks uh, and friends at Duke, plus uh, our friend uh, Stuart Grant helped him out a lot, just finished a whole month of Blocktober. This is a wonderful series that they've put together of regional anesthesia uh, videos and information, articles, and all that kind of stuff. Well, at the end of it, they actually put together a music video, and um, it is something else. So I encourage you to go. You can look at at Jeff Gadsden's Twitter account or search for them, uh, Duke Rap on uh, YouTube, and you can get to the video. Uh, I think you'll really love it. It's such a fun uh, video and a lot of good cameos in there. So maybe some of you are in the video, so make sure you check it out. Okay, I want to get to our guests. So this meeting today, this uh, session today is focused on our uh, military Special Interest Group. This is a new group within Azra Pain Medicine, and you can go to the link azra.com slash SIGS slash military if you're interested in this. And we recognize that there is a lot of overlap in the interests of what training and teaching uh, and, and clinical work is being done and research is being done in the military with the civilian world, and there's a lot to share and offer between the two. So I wanted to take the opportunity to get some of the people who are active in the special interest group, who are active in the military, and and get their uh, insights into um, what we can learn from each other and then also what some of their experiences are. So let me do some introductions real quick, and I want to get right into the topic because we've got a lot of good material to cover. So first I have Dr. Sandeep Danjal. He's from Indiana, enlisted in the U.S. Army as a truck driver, and then he completed his undergraduate education at Purdue University and earned his MD at Rosalind Franklin University. He went on to complete his anesthesia residency training and regional anesthesia fellowship training at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Major Dunjal is deployed to a combat support hospital in Baghdad, uh, was deployed uh, in Baghdad, Iraq, as part of Operation Inherent Resolve. He is now stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, with clinical duties at the University of Carolina, North Carolina and as part of a military-civilian partnership program. Dr. Dunjal serves as CME liaison for the Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine in Military Medicine Special Interest Group as part of Azure Pain Medicine. Sandeep, welcome. Nice to meet you. Nice to have you as a guest. Uh, welcome to the show. All right. Thanks for having us. Um, second, we have Dr. Steven Rodriguez. He's from California. He completed a Bachelor's of Science in Chemistry at the United States Naval Academy, followed by a medical degree from UCSD. He's trained in psychiatry for resident. He trained his, uh, in psychiatry for his residency, and then completed a pain fellowship at the Naval Medical Center in San Diego. He's an assistant professor of psychiatry and anesthesiology at the U.S. UHS School of Medicine and is currently serving as co-chief of pain medicine at Walter Reed uh, Naval Medical Center. Dr. Rodriguez serves as the chair for the Rappaman Military Medicine Special Interest Group. Welcome, Steve. Nice to see you. Thanks, Raj. And then uh, third, we have Dr. Aaron Tracy. 
She's a native of Rochester, Michigan, and is a proud graduate of the United States Air Force Academy. After receiving numerous academic and military accommodations as a cadet, she went on to attend and graduate the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. She completed her residency in anesthesiology at the National Capital Consortium, and in her final year of residency, she was selected to be chief resident. After residency, Dr. Tracy spent a year as an acute pain and regional anesthesia fellow at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus before moving on to David Grant Medical Center as staff. Dr. Tracy serves as a vice chair for the Rapham and Military Medicine Special Interest Group. Um, and uh, Sandeep, you were going to read sort of a generic disclaimer um, for the three of you, uh, for all the military branches. you mind doing that now? Yes, I'll get that in real quick. Uh, the views expressed herein are those of the group and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Army Medical Department, the Uniformed Services University, the U.S. Office of the Surgeon General, the Department of the Army, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Thanks, Roger. That also applies to the Navy and the Air Force as well um, for our colleagues here uh, uh, on the show. And, um, you know, I do want to notice before we get started that we've managed to get Army, Navy, and the Air Force. I think next time we need a Coast Guard and Space Force personnel person too, to fill around out the entire armed forces. And we've got all the corners of the country. We went from East Coast to West Coast and uh, up North. And, you know, we've got, and then I'm down South. So we've got a little bit of everything going on today. So um, this is a great group. So um, I'm going to start. Uh, uh, um, Aaron, I'm going to start with you a little bit uh, from the beginning, if you don't mind. The question is talking about experience of anesthesia, particularly regional anesthesia and pain management in the military. And the first question is, how is treating pain in the military different? And, um, and a- attached to this is this concept of readiness. And how does readiness fit into pain management as far as the military sees it? So for the military, um, you know, readiness is kind of our whole thing. Uh, Even though all of us are currently stateside, um, the military has us kind of stashed so that we could be sent out into the world to um, support the forces wherever they go. Um, In terms of pain management in the military, there's a lot of similarities, right? Like we do the same nerve blocks you guys do by and large. we treat trauma patients, you treat trauma patients. Um, Our patients tend to be on the younger side, especially if they're um, active duty far afield. Um, They tend to not have as many comorbidities, which is kind of nice. But uh, when they present to us, you know, especially in recent conflicts like like Iraq and Afghanistan, um, they may be presenting with uh, injuries to all four extremities. Um, Luckily, um, truncal injuries are uh, somewhat diminished by body armor, um, as are head injuries a bit diminished by um, having helmets, but uh, injuries to the extremities are are gonna be pretty common, um, both from uh, projectile from uh, uh, guns and from uh, IED explosions. And Sandeep, you know, as far as um, when we talk about readiness, you know, pain control is complicated because it's not something that you can just point a finger at and say, yep, there's, you know, they're not meeting this goal or they're not hitting this hurdle or they're not, you know, able to run four miles or something like that. How does pain fit into that? And then are you 
uh, hindered in your choices of how to handle pain for a patient um, because it may affect their readiness? Or do you take that into consideration how you handle that, both in the acute and chronic periods? Yeah, so Raj, I think that's that's a really important question. Uh, part of it I'll be able to answer. I think the other part, Dr. Rodriguez, will, will, will definitely be able to answer. Uh, oftentimes when we, when we do operate, we are in more austere environments, austere environments, you know, provide us with fewer providers, provide us with, you know, um, fewer supplies. So we have to take that into consideration when applying analgesics to patients. Um, you know, a good example is, you know, we think, you know, traditionally systemic analgesics like opioids, they suppress respirations. Um, this cost, while it is present in, um, you know, conventional clinical medicine, one of the considerations in the austere environment is you have limited oxygen supply. Uh, you may have, you know, portable oxygen generator. You may have, you know, be reliant on, on only you know, your E-cylinders, H-cylinders, which are available. Uh, so it may limit some of these modalities. On the other hand, uh, in the military, we tend to use, you know, agents that spare respirations like, like ketamine. Uh, but this has its cost in the austere environment. You know, obviously it has an impact on cognitive function. So whenever we take away, you know, a patient's cognitive function in an austere environment or in the combat setting, we limit one that that patient's ability to perform self-care. But additionally, we can, you know, put the patient in a setting where they require additional care. And this can be complicated when we have limited providers. So you'll often see, at least in the acute setting, particularly in, you know, in the combat theater, uh, heavy, heavy reliance on regional anesthesia. Uh, a good example, if we, you know, just dive into the literature, uh, granted, there's not there's not a heck of a lot on, on uh, uh, you know, utility of, of regional anesthesia in the setting of trauma. Uh, but there is a good study out of Australia in 2009 um, where they looked at implementation of regional anesthetics in um, emergency departments. Now, they found that, you know, in the study, uh, approximately 7, 8 percent of patients received uh, regional anesthetics. And granted, it's a different setting and there's some some reasonable barriers to this. But when you look at some of our data coming out of Camp Bastion or a study um, we recently published uh, coming out of Baghdad, about three quarters or more of our patients received regional anesthetics. And, and we suspect it's for this region, reason. Uh, regarding the chronic pain, uh, I'd have to pass that on to Dr. Rodriguez. Over. Yeah. So before we get to that, so um, the, the regional anesthetics, so you're talking both on the front line, but you're also talking about when you get back to the field hospitals and then uh, back to wherever you're, you're um, have more resources, it's still highly utilized in combat scenarios. Uh, this is correct, uh, Raj. Um, in, in fact, we train providers, you know, not just anesthesiologists to, to perform some of these more invasive blocks. Uh, given the you know public affairs uh, and, and the disclosure I, I presented, I'm not going to be able to talk into too much detail. Sure. But I can speak on the anesthesi anesthesiologist side that, you know, in, in pre-hospital care, we are performing uh, these these blocks. And, you know, from the benefits that I mentioned, uh, this is where they're truly, truly advantageous. Over. Yeah, we had um, we have some special forces medics that come and kind of observe what we do. Um, I'm at Vanderbilt University. And so they come over from Fort Campbell um, at the uh, Army base over there. And they're talking about doing, um, you know, different kinds of blocks in the field um, right at the point of injury so that they can facilitate transport back to to higher levels of care. Um, Steve, you want to talk a little bit about. You know, I, I don't know how much chronic pain management's occurring in the field, but obviously these patients are these soldiers and um, and and sailors are coming back 
two hospitals at the at uh, on on the mainland and develop chronic pain and how does that affect your decision about how to manage them knowing that they are interested in going back out at some point yeah no that's a great great question raj and i think you uh with the first question hit on uh, really how managing pain certainly from a chronic pain perspective uh, differs in the military as opposed to in the civilian sector um you mentioned readiness i mean that's uh like aaron said that's at the heart of what we do, readiness. So, um, you know, we within the chronic pain world are assessing patients as they come in. And that would be a transition from the acute pain setting into the chronic pain setting, which would be more of a, you know, rule three, as we, we like to call it, so a hospital setting. But we are making that assessment with each encounter that we have with patients. So, um, you know, we as pain physicians treating active duty service members by default are dual agents. So that basically means that we have duties and responsibilities to our patients to treat pain and to ease suffering. But we've also got duties and obligations to the service to ensure that we have a medically ready force that is able to go out and, and do their jobs, right? Because each of us have a job to do and collectively we, we um, you know, complete the mission. So those assessments are being done. Uh, we're providing treatments. They are, um, the chronic pain treatments are more, um, more along the lines of, you know, epidurals, RFAs, things like that to kind of tune patients up, uh, get them to a point where they can get back out into the fight, where they can do their jobs uh, without having to suffer through the pain, you know, through pain. Um, and oftentimes they'll, you know, they'll come in for a, you know, quote unquote, tune up, we'll treat them within the chronic pain realm, and then we'll send them back out. They'll go, they'll deploy, they'll train, they'll do, you know, what they do in the military, depending on their role, and then they'll come back. So we see that often in the pain medicine or in the chronic pain medicine world. Um, occasionally, unfortunately, there, there comes a time where a service member is suffering from some sort of pathology that, that doesn't allow them to, um, to return fit for full duty, meaning they can't complete their job without a certain level of care. But when that happens, we still treat the patient as we would any, any other, but then we have to talk about you know, our duties and obligations to the service. So the service entrusts us to make sure we send the right person out to, to do the job that is required of them. And when that's no longer a possibility, then we, um, we have to medically retire that individual. And so even for things that you wouldn't think, you know, out in the civilian world would be a big, uh, big issue or something that would prevent somebody from working, let's say, it may prevent them from being deployable. And so, you know, by default, we have to medically retire them and, and kind of focus our efforts on the, the service members who are able to, um, to get better and then get back out into the fight. I'm curious, Steve, um, when, when you guys are making those difficult choices about who takes priority, the patient's needs uh, versus and sometimes they're not incongruous uh, uh, and the military's need, um, mm -hmm. I, I often wonder if the, the, the patient is resistant to treatment so that they can continue to be deployed or are they frustrated that they're not getting treatment because the military doesn't want them to? Which one happens more often? 
Um, yeah, but far and away, the the patient is um, hiding, for lack of a better term, their their true pain, right? The true issues that they're having, so that they can remain in the military. And when they come to us, they're often much more advanced um, in the sort of the pain pathology that they had, you know, may have suffered six months, a year prior. And so when we see them, it's it's a, it can be a challenge to try to keep them again fit for full duty so that we don't have to medically retire them. Um, I want to bring up a question. I'm going to interrupt my normal questions I had. Dr. Grosh uh, at in Philadelphia asked the questions, how do you deal with compartment syndrome concerns? So you mentioned trauma. Aaron, I'll, I'll start with you. I see you nodding your head over there. Um, you know, in, in the civilian world, uh, compartment syndrome is a point of contention between our trauma surgeons and our regional anesthesiologists often, where we're afraid to mask compartment syndrome with a nerve block. And so, um, uh, oftentimes our surgeons are reluctant to let us do blocks on patients. And I'm curious in the military, is that perspective shared or do you guys handle that differently? So, yeah, that's a, that's an ongoing point of concern for us as well. Um, when we're far afield, usually there is a trauma chief who is a surgeon. Um, and generally if we're at like, say a role three, which is a more advanced field hospital, um, there's kind of a constant communication between uh, the trauma chief and other members of the surgical team and the um, anesthesiologist who's running the acute pain service to determine, you know, is this patient going to be better served by a block? Are we very concerned about compartment syndrome? Do we need to just do prophylactic fasciotomies and then, um, you know, potentially place a nerve catheter? so that we can get this patient comfortable enough to uh, say, get on a plane and be flown halfway across the world. Um, so yeah, it's something that we, we deal with quite a bit too. Sandeep, you we wanted to add anything to that as far as approaches and how that's different. I mean, you're working at University of North Carolina now, obviously um, a mixture of both military and civilian worlds. Do you see those intersecting about the same way or there's a different perspective? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Raj. Um, I think Aaron nailed it. Uh, these decisions are, are very complex. You know, they involve risk benefits. There certainly is a reasonable concern that, that a regional anesthetic can mask um, compartment syndrome. You know, on the other side, uh, you know, I think it's important to note that there have been instances where, uh, you know, regional anesthesia and the breakthrough pain has heralded the diagnosis. So, um, you know, I think a, a discussion with the patient, discussion with the you know, with the surgical team or whoever's providing the primary care for the patient is, is important, um, especially given that oftentimes from a role two to a role three facility or role three facility back home or, or to Germany, um, you know, patient's going to be you know, on a flight for a while. And, and you know, um, uh, clinical observation may be difficult over that time. So these are all kind of unique considerations. Uh, one of the things that's, that I, I think is growing, at least in the, in the more deployed or, or austere side, is, is accepting that regional anesthesia is not binary. It's not yes or no, my patient has a regional anesthetic. You know, I think, you know, oftentimes we're, we're running these catheters on 0.2% on ropivacaine, uh, you know, as opposed to 1% ropivacaine. And I think this comes into play when we're discussing, you know, masking, uh, you know, something like a missed injury or, or ongoing compartment syndrome. 
So, you know, these, these complexities, these nuances um, are, are why it's important to have this multidisciplinary discussion, um, particularly in the deployed environment. And, you know, I certainly get similar guidance from the civilian counterparts that I work with. Over. Sandeep, I want to uh, stick with you for a second. So um, after your fellowship training, you were deployed um, to a combat situation um, in, um, in Iraq at that time. Um, and I know I've, I've had colleagues of mine who both worked in Baghdad during um, not the most recent Gulf War, but the prior Gulf War. And then uh, recently I had a, well, it's been about seven years, one of our fellows uh, graduated and then was deployed to Kandahar and um, described uh, immense value to continuous catheters um, in those settings and um, how that uh, affected not just the pain management, but sort of the um, ability of the the soldier to um, stay not sedated, being able to talk to their family on the phone during transport to Germany, um, that it almost blew the minds of some of their leadership because I don't know why some of them hadn't seen this impact. Do, do you see that, you know, it's not becoming news anymore. This is almost becoming routine now and leadership is seeking this out. And how do you, how big of a factor are these continuous catheters in, in the military, especially I'm thinking as close to the combat zones as you can reasonably do them. Um, is that, is that how close they're being put in? Oh, yes. Um, you know, I think, I think in your, in your question, you, you nailed it. I think there's, there's immense value, um, you know, from the factors I mentioned initially, I think the the consideration on when to place the catheters is uh, you know is is very difficult to answer. We obviously we want a sterile environment, we want a clean environment. Um, we uh, we often rely on single injection um, blocks if you know we know we're going to be sitting on a patient for you know a day until we can get them to advanced care. Uh, but while patients are moving through the echelons of care, certainly having uh, continuous, you know, regional anesthetics, continuous peripheral nerve catheters uh, has value, keeping the patient awake, not relying on oxygen. Um, simple things like, you know, a, a patient in flight noticing his or her own uh, IV disconnection, you know, that, that happens often because patient's awake. Um, patient can alert you to, you know, a, a change in, in, in pain, um, which, you know, after, after polytrauma, it becomes important to you know, be able to rapidly diagnose new and ongoing trauma, say uh, developing pneumothorax during transport or whatnot. Um, as to your question on, on, you know, how ubiquitous this has become and, and how accepted as a, a standard of care, uh, I think, you know, I, the way Aaron and I trained, we have to give credit to one of our predecessors, Colonel Buckenmeyer. Um, he kind of established the system of including uh, the practice well-documented in our clinical practice guidelines as part of our, our joint trauma system. Um, and, and we have a kind of a system where the, the air force has a, a written policy on what needs to be in place to safely employ these catheters during transportation. Uh, we have, you know, pumps that I, I don't believe I can, uh, uh, you know, drop the, the manufacturer, but, um, we have these pumps that are, uh, infusion pumps that can, you know, withstand harsh environments, uh, providers on, you know, on the, the transportation um, and at the facilities that the patients are being transported to are familiar with these devices. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah. It, I mean, there's obviously a, 
you know, some of the same challenges that we deal with, but in a smaller scale, obviously without flights across continents and stuff involved. Um, but the handoffs of care, the communication, the ability for patients to be a part of their care, all of that stuff is valuable, even in the civilian environment. Um, you guys obviously take it to a different level and extreme in those environments. Um, I, I know one of the things that Dr. Buck and I worked on and several of the people that started catheters early in the military were durations of infusions, um, you know, five days. We, we, we all stick to five days. In traditional um, civilian care, we usually try to keep catheters in about five days, maybe seven at most. Um, and uh, in the military, I know it's 10, sometimes 14 days. You guys have done um, much, much longer um, infusions of catheters, showing pretty good results, occasionally some infections, um, not a lot of concerns with bleeding, not deep infections, those kinds of things. I, Aaron, I see you nodding your head over there. I mean, uh, obviously, this, this is informing our, our civilian practice quite a bit, too, is all of that experience. Yeah. So, um, you know, so stateside, we do we do stick to the five to seven days for catheters. But certainly, um, you know, back when we were more busy in Afghanistan and Iraq, we would have you know, catheters that for whatever reason, transport was delayed, couldn't be replaced. Perhaps it was a particularly difficult catheter placement um, or for whatever reason, uh, you know, we would take them out to 10. I think the longest I personally ever saw was 12 days. Sandy might have seen longer. But um, yeah, we managed to thankfully avoid any any deep infections, like you said, any very serious complications to my knowledge. Um but it, it definitely involves some boundary pushing at some point. Yeah. Um, Steve, I want to ask you a question. So, um, you know, acute and chronic pain physicians um, in civilian life, um, what, what do they have that we can or what can they learn from your military experience in patient interaction, choices of techniques that maybe, you know, we need to have you guys lecturing to us to say, hey, these are some better practice opportunities. And I'm particularly thinking in the chronic pain world because um, I've got a question that I'm leading up to later about this transition from active duty to uh, veterans and, and, and where the chronic pain uh, impact is there. But what do you think as far as practice from the physician's point of view we can learn from the military experience? I think uh, – I think – the military does a particularly good job at um, ensuring that patients, service members, that we're, we're focusing in more so on, you know, on functionality, as I mentioned previously. Because when we treat service members, our ultimate goal is to get them back fit for full duty. So we apply a multimodal approach. Uh, that's just the standard of care. And, and I think that we put a, a greater emphasis on um, on having the patient take agency in their own treatment. So whether it be physical therapy or if they're off doing some sort of functional rehab, um, the patient has a lot of, of, uh, of say in how they're going to do overall. And we have that discussion with them. You know, there's only so much that we as pain physicians can do. Um, the patient also has to take some responsibility for, um, for getting better overall. So I think, you know, that in the civilian world, the efficiency level is, 
is incredible. And I'm generalizing here, but as compared to the military setting, uh, I think we could certainly learn a thing or two in regards to uh, to efficiency. But in terms of using a multimodal approach and ensuring that patients are taking agency and doing what they can to improve or to, to get healthy, uh, I think we do a particularly good job at that. And Sandeep, you um, had also mentioned something about uh, pain scoring and how pain assessment is a little bit different in the military than we do in, in the civilian um, world. I'm going to try to pull up this picture that you sent me. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that and, and how, um, you know, maybe that's another opportunity for us to improve our practices? Yeah, yeah. I uh, definitely appreciate that, Raj. Um, you know, while there are a number of lessons learned uh, in, in the military, I, I truly believe that this is is one of the one of the biggest contributions that we potentially have for the, our, our civilian counterparts. Um, and, and this is simply born out of necessity uh, throughout global war on terrorism. Um, having dealt with long transport times, having dealt with multiple providers, we just had trouble dealing with the inconsistency of of pain scoring and titration of analgesics. And so, you know, per a tasker from the, the Surgeon General at the time, um, we created a task force to come up with this, this scoring system. And basically what it, what it does is on the front of this card, it, it provides you with a system similar to your NRS, your numeric rating scale. Uh, but the descriptors are helpful. You know, I'd argue the colors and the faces are pretty helpful too. Um, but to me, the true value comes in, in looking at the backside of the card where we, we look at the impact of pain. And, and we find this helpful because not only does it, it cue the, the patient into, you know, truly how much is this pain impacting other aspects of their life other than simply their focus on intensity of pain, um, but it also cues the providers into, you know, how to titrate various analgesics. So, you know, with the, with the back of this card uh, basically directs is, is that the, the provider, you know, obtained from the patient on a scale of zero to 10, how much the pain impacts activity sleep, mood, and stress. And, you know, why this is helpful is, is it really gets the, the patient to thinking, hey, how is my pain not only now, but when I'm doing various activities? So, you know, a good example is, you know, patients doing well, but having trouble with sleep, right? And, and let's, you know, for the, for the sake of this conversation, um, you know, include that the, ketamine, the, the patient's on ketamine and, you know, perhaps hallucinations are, are, you know, impacting sleep or anxieties, you know, impacting sleep. This may be a, a time for the provider to consider, you know, a dexmedetomity and infusion, you know, as opposed to ketamine. Um, or if we see elevated pain scores across the board, maybe, maybe look for a more intense uh, analgesic modality like a peripheral nerve block. Um, when we talk about activity, you know, a lot of these patients are, they're, they're pushing themselves pretty hard. They're trying to get through physical, physical therapy. So maybe, you know, uh, you know, in this scenario, a, an additional PRN analgesic right, right before PT or available during PT, uh, may be helpful. Um, more important than, than, you know, it's, it's validation in the military. Uh, this has already started to contribute to civilian care. There are a number of centers that are utilizing it. And I wanted to bring up um, uh, Sheikh and colleagues out of University of Florida actually compared the standard NRS score in a study to um, the, the, the scale we're looking at, the DBPRS. And um, in their study, what they, what they noticed is that increasing pain scores had the expected association with the increased opiate requirement. But what the authors of the study also found was that um, the, the DVPRS or the Defense and Veterans uh, Pain Rating Scale 
um, help to better differentiate between moderate and severe pain. Uh, so, you know, I think the the, in, the validation that we have in the military, um, you know, the the increasing use in the civilian world, um, this is definitely a scale and a form of assessment that that I think we have learned a great deal from, and you know, we we have to continue to contribute to our civilian counterparts. Over. Yeah, thank you. Um, and and I think that uh, these questions on the back, I think um, those of us who've rounded on the acute pain service, um, we, we have intuitively started asking these questions. We never, many of us have not formalized the process that you're describing, but we know that a pain score by itself doesn't tell the whole story and it doesn't necessarily inform the next decisions. Um, most rating scales are only good if they inform your next decision and how to manage the patient. And and uh, a pain score by itself that's just zero to 10 doesn't always tell you the whole story. So this is really nice to have some of this granularity, but in a relatively easy to access manner. Um, have you seen, uh, you said civilian locations have started implementing this that you've seen? Uh Yes. So, um, you know, as mentioned uh, in, a, in a study, University of Florida. Yeah, University um, of Florida, yep. And I, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to quote the, the university wrong. Um, Colonel Buckemeyer, I believe, mentioned uh, one, of the, one of the hospitals in Virginia. Um, but yes, there's slow increase. Don't quote me on that last one. Sure, sure. So, um I, I do want to move on to one other question because we're we're already about 40 minutes into this and uh, time flies when we're having a good time. Um, I, there is one topic I want to go over and, and make sure we hit. And Steve, I'll start with you on this, which is, um, you know, I hinted at it before, is when active duty service members become veterans. Um, we know that there is a crisis of pain management and uh, opioid dependence in the veterans uh, of the United States. Um, and it sounds like the active duty in DOD is doing a tremendous job of trying to prevent those from occurring, becoming problems down the road. Do you see the transition from the acute to chronic pain process getting better over time? Are we doing a better job uh, at helping these people that are injured or develop new pain syndromes become more functional and they go into uh, civilian life after the military, or are we still struggling with that transition? And where, where, where does uh, work need to be done still? Yeah, I think we are doing a better job overall. Um, I think just identifying is half the battle so that we can uh, focus our efforts on trying to improve that transition but I think from going from an active duty um, service member status into being a veteran, so going to be treated at the VA, uh, there certainly are some pitfalls that, that we run into. As I mentioned before, um, when we are assessing patients for their, their ability to continue doing their job, when, when we get to a point where that's no longer the case and they're medically retired, that's often not a decision that, that they're happy with. Um, active duty service members who suffer injuries that are career ending typically have a lot of combat experience. So um, the psychiatrist in me is going to kind of bring up the whole you know, idea of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, all of these issues that go along with chronic pain contribute 
significant to to addiction and also to you know trying to use something like an opioid to uh, to forget about that the pain that that causes. So the way that we are are looking at pain these days is more from a, a global perspective. So it's a biopsychosocial assessment and trying to incorporate as many treatments as we can to address all three of those those arenas to uh, make that transition smoother and just have the handoff be something that, um, you know, where we have a patient who's more stable as they go from the active duty side into the veteran population. Yeah, I mean, we, we um, in the civilian hospitals often get to see some of our veteran patients and, you know, they, they're often the most challenging, uh, most grateful, but most challenging because they have a combination of physical somatic medical diagnoses combined with their psychiatric diagnoses, mental health issues, and chronic pain. And, and often um, it's a lot. It's a, it's a complicated thing to deal with. Um, and, and there's a, unfortunately, with many years of war, we have a lot of uh, veterans out there now um, that are going to need this care for quite some time. Um, before we wind down this conversation, I just want to give you guys one last chance, one at a time. If there's any other main point you want the audience to hear uh, about this um, experience of acute pain, regional anesthesia, chronic pain in the military, that those of us in the civilian world should be aware of or can learn from. Aaron, just any thoughts that you have that um, we didn't hit today? Uh, so my main thought is that, um, you know, we both communities have a lot to learn from each other. And um, I think, you know, as someone who's um, faculty at the Uniformed Services University, I know we have a lot of HPSP students out there who you guys will be interacting with uh, who will be coming on to active duty. So first, thank you for taking the time to educate them and any other uh, UCU students that you might come across in your travels. Um, but I think just, uh, you know, anything that you guys uh, can learn from us is probably relating to uh, practicing in a resource limited environment. Um, yeah, we had, uh, we had a similar conversation at one of our previous podcasts about low resource environments and countries and how they're having to be creative sometimes uh, to accomplish some of the same tasks often with equipment that's not as refined, often with supplies that are much more more shortages than we're even experiencing in the United States. Um, but regional anesthesia has kind of risen in those environments to allow for care of patients um, with less um, resources. Uh, and actually, it's taken a highlight in those environments too. Exactly. Uh, in resource-limited environments, uh, opioids are often one of the first things to go. So being in, oh, able to step in with some local is uh, not a bad thing. Yeah, we think of opioids as sort of the, the thing that's always there. But I guess in a lot of places, it's not true that you don't have them readily available. Sandeep, any thoughts um, before we wind down here? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, this is going to come from kind of a place of humility. Uh, in the military, we tend to focus on, on acute and, and chronic effects, effects of, of combat. And therefore, our research, our clinical practice tends to be fairly narrow. Um, so, you know, while we may have something to contribute to, you know, um, like lessons learned to provide the civilian world, uh, we have a lot to learn from the civilian world, um, you know, especially from dealing with complex pathophysiology, advanced oncologic diseases, severe cardiac diseases, stuff that we just we don't see 
uh, in the military, um, not to mention, you know, novel blocks and whatnot. Um, so, you know, this is this is really the reason why I'm in the position I currently am. And this military civilian partnership is, you know, the goal of, of learning lessons that we can take from civilian practice and and put into into the military world. Um, so, you know, with that being said, uh, if any of you are free during the SIG meeting uh, in Azra, please, you know, come by, seek us out. Uh, we need contribution. We need mentorship. Um, you know, things like like ERAS and multimodal analgesia. These are concepts that we simply took from the, the civilian world and, and dropped them in our clinical practice guidelines. So new ideas like this. I hate to name drop, but out of UNC, where I'm at right now, uh, Dr. Stuart Grant, within the first week I was there, was already teaching me a new block. So. You know, he can't help himself. He he just that's he trips and teaches somebody something new. So he's that's just sort of his nature. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> um. And and uh, Steve, uh, any thoughts on you know a point you want to make sure that people get across from today? I, I have a lot of. I mean, I I think we could have a whole separate conversation and podcast on just advanced chronic pain and and where that fits into the military since. Uh, chronic pain has been blowing up with innovation. I don't know how much of it trickles into the military or if any of it's coming from the military. I'm not really familiar with that myself because I don't practice that primarily. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. That advanced chronic pain is something that does trickle into the military, mainly with our dependents and our retirees, because I think it's uh, important to to recognize that we not only treat active duty, but we will also treat the, those individuals, their dependents, as well as retirees who uh, are still TRICARE covered. So a lot of the advanced chronic pain treatments that we provide are for that for those patient populations. Um, but the, the I guess my closing comment would be just to say thank you. I mean, I've received an overwhelming amount of support personally um, and to, from ASRA as well. Uh, allowing us to have this special interest group and to, you know, expand our reach and try to do more um, um, just networking with with some mentors. And, and I share what Aaron and both Sandy said in regard to what we can learn from each other. Yeah. And just to echo that point, I mean, I've I've had the good fortune of working with several people who have either been active duty military or um, retired from the military and have both been uh, learners from me, but more importantly, many of them educators uh, for myself. Um, and I can tell you that um, it's one of the most pleasurable experiences to work with people that have been in the military or in the military because um, they, the engagement, the enthusiasm, the sort of dedication is at a different level. And um, it's, it's always a pleasure. And so if any of you have an opportunity to collaborate with any of our military colleagues on this effort, I, I guarantee you, you will have a good experience. Um, and, and hopefully um, through the special interest group, we can do some of this shared learning back and forth and we grow on that and build on this because I, I think it's so valuable and, and I, I've directly benefited from it and I can definitely uh, agree that other people would as well. So I, I want to thank all three of you um, for being here today. Um, we've, I apologize to those of you guys who were expecting us a couple of weeks ago. I had to reschedule because of a family incident. Uh, everything's good. but um, and, and so I really appreciate all three of you guys making time on a, on a different day to, to have this show. Um, 
this is the beginning of the conversation. This is not an end of a conversation. So hopefully you guys get to, uh, I get to meet you guys in person. Other people get to meet you in person and we can continue this conversation. Um, so each, uh, each of you welcome to the Azure pay medicine community as uh, special interest group leaders and, uh, hope to see you at the meeting and thank you again for being part of the show. Thank you. Thanks, Raj. Thank you everybody and have a good night.